Okay, you guys can be seated. So good evening, everybody. It's uh, great to see everybody out here tonight. Um, if, if you're visiting with us, just uh, please know that we're, we're really happy that you've uh, chosen to be here tonight. We know there are a lot of places you could be um, in Tampa on a Sunday night, and we are just uh, we're humbled that you chose to be here with, with us. So we've been, we've been going through a sermon series called Multiply, and uh, in, that, in that series, Multiply, we've been going through the book of 2 Timothy, all right? And we're, we're getting near the end of our trek through 2 Timothy. And, and I, I want to I say this. This is kind of a bonus, right? I mean, is, you know, anybody that actually is not, like, looking at the Bible on the phone, but if you're actually holding an actual, you know, like, real copy of God's Word, who knows, who knows now where 2 Timothy is? I mean, you can just flip right to it, Right? It's one of the, uh, one of the benefits of, of us being in 2 Timothy for like the last six weeks. It's been, it's been amazing. But uh, so we're getting near the end. We're, we're getting to uh, chapter four tonight. So it's the last chapter of 2 Timothy. So if you have your Bible, I hope you do, go ahead and turn there to 2 Timothy uh, chapter four. So this, this letter, Paul is writing this letter. He's in prison in Rome. He's, he's awaiting execution. And he's, he's writing this, this charge to his younger disciple, Timothy. He knew, Paul knew, that his time on earth was, it's, it's coming to an end, right? And, and he wanted desperately to impart some final thoughts, some final instructions on his young disciple, Timothy. So think about that. Think about that for a minute. What if, what if you had days to live? weeks or, or months to live, what would you do? How are you going to spend that time, your final days on earth? How are you going to spend that time? Who would you spend it with? I mean, essentially, Paul here, he knows that this is it. And he's, he's taken these final days, and he's chosen to, to impart this wisdom on Timothy. He's leaving this a legacy for Timothy. I mean, think about a legacy. A legacy is what somebody does in their life to kind of put a stamp on the future, right? To make a, a meaningful contribution to, to future generations. I mean, and it could be a lot of different things. I mean, legacies can kind of come in a lot of different forms. I mean, they can be monetary. I mean, you go over to the hospital right over here, and I'm sure there's a wing of the hospital named after someone. Somebody's given the money for, for something like that to, to be built, Right? It could be at the university here, it could be a scholarship in someone's name, and they've endowed this scholarship for you know, generations to come, and so someone can always have a way to pay for college. I mean, they can be political, right? Like the founding fathers of America, they left a legacy, right? A lot of other ways that people can leave legacies. But when, when I think of individuals who, who have left legacies, I mean, I think of people like Martin Luther King Jr., Mother Teresa. Both of these are individuals who, who lived their lives in a way that, that positively affected generations that would follow. And this is what Paul is attempting to do here when he's writing, uh, when he's writing this, this letter to, to Timothy. And we can, we can look back, and I think we can pretty much say that he accomplished what he, what he set out to do, right? I mean, we're, we're sitting here some 2,000 years later reading this letter. We're reading this letter to Timothy and applying it to our own lives, which 
which basically means Paul did a pretty good job here. I mean, he was the, quite possibly the greatest missionary to ever live. And we're, we're reading in the New Testament here, we're reading his letters to churches. It's pretty amazing. And so here's what he's doing. As, as Paul's life was nearing an end, he's, he's charging Timothy to, to preach the word. We're going to see that tonight, to preach the word and fight the good fight. We'll talk about that. The whole purpose of what we're going to read and what we're going to study tonight is about the, the greatness of God's word. So if you're taking notes, I hope you take notes. If you're taking notes, our main idea tonight is this. God's word is profitable. God's word is profitable. So for our time tonight, I said 2 Timothy 4. We're actually going to reach back into, into chapter 3. We're going to grab the last two verses out of chapter 3. We're going to start there. We're going to read all the way to, to chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And once we finish with those, those 10 verses, we're going we're gonna to split them up into three different sections, three different sectional titles, and, and uh, we'll go through each section. We'll talk about it, and then at the end, we'll, we'll apply everything, and then that'll be our, our time together. So, so remember, God's Word is profitable. First section title is going to be Preach the Word. Number two is Protect the Word. And finally, number three, persevere in the word. Preach the word, protect the word, persevere in the word. What's it mean when something is profitable? When something is valuable? I mean, like, why did I choose God's word as profitable? If something is profitable, then you, you value that, right? You value what is profitable, what means something to you, right? So if we, if we say that God's word is profitable, then this brings an action about what we do with God's word, right? We preach the word. We protect the word. We persevere in, in the word. And then once we do that, there's, there's something that comes out of that. I mean, there's, there's something that happens when we, when we do this. And I'm, guys in the back, sorry, I'm going rogue. I'm going, I know my community group is probably thinking, oh, here we go. My wife especially. But I'm going to go a little bit rogue here. I'm going off script, all right? If we do this, if we believe that God is profitable, it changes everything about how we live, Right? It changes everything. It changes the lens in which we see the world. We look at, we look at today's ills, thing that this, wor- this world is so sick of and sick over. We look at things like racism, and we go, whose word is going to make it right? Ours? No. You want to you talk to somebody about racism? You, you show them God's word. You go back. You go back to Genesis chapter 1 through 11. You talk to them. You preach the word. You talk to them about how the, how the, how the nations were created. And it's beautiful. And you, you take them all the way through to Revelation chapter 7 at the end of the Bible when we have this picture of heaven. 
And we see that all the nations, every tongue, tribe, nation on earth is there at the throne worshiping God together. We, we deal with things today like abortion. It's a tragedy. We're 50 million babies made in the image of God, killed in this country alone. It's a, it's a national disgrace. You want to talk about that with someone who disagrees with you? Take them to God's word. Take them to Genesis 2. Tell them how God created man. You take them to Genesis 3 and tell them how we messed up. You take them to Psalm 119. You take them, if you want to talk to them about adoption, you, you take them to Galatians 4, Romans 8. You talk to them about adoption. Your word is worthless. God's word has power. It has power. It has power to, to change what we are dealing with. You want to talk to people, we're dealing with poverty. You want to talk to people about poverty, you take them to God's word. We're not going to solve it. We've been trying. We've been trying for decades and hundreds of years to solve these ills that our world has. We haven't done it yet. We haven't gotten close. Take them to God's word. So what's the result? I'm, I'm going to get back on track in just a minute. But what's the result? We see people preaching the word around the world. We see in China. We see estimated. There's no, there's no real number. You can't do it. The government wouldn't allow it. But we see there's estimates of 35,000 people a day coming to Christ in China. The church is exploding in China. A few years, they will be the largest Christian nation in the world. The church in North Korea, the church in Iran, exploding. It's all underground, waiting, it's waiting. People in North Korea who are Christians, they're starving, there's a famine, and they're giving food to unbelievers to show them the love of Christ. They value God's word. This is what happens when you believe that God's word is profitable. We went to a church in Greensboro that hosted refugees from Burma. These people literally fled Burma for their lives, crossed the river into Thailand. They were living in refugee camps. They got refugee status. They started coming to America. Greensboro, North Carolina was one of the places that a lot of these refugees were, were uh, replanted. We hosted them at our church. There were a small number of Christians. That, that small number of Christian uh, community of, of Burmese refugees, it, it exploded to where now there's 150, 200 on a Sunday worshiping at, at, in our space at our old church. We bought Bibles. These people had nothing when they came. We bought them Bibles. And these, these sweet children that we would kind of teaching a, an ESL class with the Bible, teaching them, we handed them their class material, which was their, a Bible, in a wrapper and in a box. These sweet children, every Sunday, 
would bring the box with their Bible in it. And they would open the box and they would take the Bible out. And when they finished, they would take the Bible, they would put it back in the box to protect it. It was precious to them. They loved God's Word. You see, you see videos, they're all over YouTube, look them up. Videos all over where you see people who are in closed countries. And by the way, do we need to mention that today is our, the national pray for the persecuted church, right? It's one of the reasons I'm talking about this. We see, we see people who are believers in closed country where the gospel is prohibited from being preached. And we see them crying over the Bibles that they receive when people have smuggled Bibles in to these countries that are closed. And they get these Bibles and they're just weeping and they're crying because they're holding a copy of God's Word. This is what we do when we believe that God's Word is profitable. All right, back on track. Let's get, let's get rolling with the scripture, all right? We're going to be in chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, and we're going to go right on into chapter 4. So, chapter 3, verse 16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof and correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will in turn will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the, work of, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only me, to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us through your word, that you care for us that much that you communicate to us through these, these words that we, that we have. We pray, God, that right now, as we are going through the scripture, Lord, I pray, God, that you would just, um, just open our eyes, open our hearts to see what it is that you have for, uh, for us tonight, Lord. It's in your holy, precious name that we pray. Amen. All right, guys. So, um, first section title. All right, 
preach the word. Remember, these are the things that we do when we believe that God's word is profitable, when we believe that it's valuable. So number one, we preach the word. You know, the first thing that strikes me as we start reading this, chapter, or uh, verse 16, first thing that strikes me here in verse 16 is the reality that God breathed out all scripture. God actually breathed out every word in the Bible. We've been talking about for weeks now this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. And the reality is we think Paul wrote this letter to Timothy. But Paul was under the holy influence of God when writing it. These are God's words to Timothy through his servant Paul. What an incredible picture. I mean, think about that. I mean, every book that we have in the Bible, it may have a person's name on it. It's going to, you read through the, you know, the, at the very beginning, you see the author, and it'll tell you who the author, the author is God. We may have a person's name there, but the author is God. These are God's words that he will, that he's given us. And it makes sense, right, that, that God influenced the writers of the Bible? I mean, if the creator of the universe and everything in it wants to reveal his character to us through this book, then, then he's not going to leave it to us. We, we would totally mess it up. He's, he's going to give us the words that, that, that he wants us to read about him. We'd mess it up. So he gives it to us. Next, we, Paul gives Timothy and us here. This, remember, this is for us as well. He gives, he gives Timothy a list here of what God's word is good for. It's good for teaching, reproofing, correcting, and training. Guys, once you become a Christian, you're, you're not done with God's word. God's word isn't solely for justification or at the point of salvation. That's what justification means. When, when you are justified, it means that you are, you, you are saved, sealed for, for God. God's word is not solely for justification or for the point of salvation. We, but, we, but we must think that that's the case. It's a recent survey says that only 11% of professing Christians have actually read the Bible cover to cover. 11%. That's crazy. We, we, we become Christians and it's like we, we don't even care what the Bible says. Think about the other things that we care more about. We're in a mall. What's the last time you've gone out and bought a pair of pants? What do you do? This is not what I'll do, but I'll tell you what I think you do. You get these pants. You take them into the dressing room. You try them on. And they've got the mirror that gives you 36 different angles of your body. And you, you check them out in, in, every, in everything, you know, every, every kind of anything you could ever do. You check yourself out in these pants. You care more about how these pants look on you than what God is trying to tell us in the Bible. Think about that. It's pretty sad. When we're saved, we don't, we don't graduate from the Bible to the latest best-selling book in the Christian bookstore to, to now help us grow in our relationship with Christ. We don't, we don't need it. 
We don't need any of those books. Now, follow me here. I'm not saying that every book in the Christian bookstore is bad. Obviously, there are some really good books, really helpful books and, and great resources. Here's the point. There's, there's only one book that God has promised to bless, to sanctify you, to make you holy, grow you in the image of Christ. And that is this book. There's only one book that he has given that, that promise to. If Every Christian bookstore burned to the ground tonight. We would still have everything we need to grow into the image of Christ. We don't, we don't need anything else. Now, I say this, and, and I'll, I'll admit that the Bible doesn't address every issue we're going to face in the 21st century. And that's not a heretical thing to say, right? I mean, the Bible doesn't instruct me on how to invest in my 401k plan wish it did, but it doesn't. It doesn't tell you whether or not you should buy your third grader an iPhone. I'll give you that one for free. No. (laughs) It doesn't address divorce recovery, like divorce recovery or how a single parent is supposed to raise three kids. No, they're, they're truths. They're principles in God's word that are going to inform our understanding of these things. But, but here's the deal. The, the Bible was never intended to, to, to address, to answer every specific situation that we're going to face in life. So what's it good for then? Well, glad you ask. It's intended to conform each of us into the image of Christ. That's the purpose of the Bible. To mold us more and more into the image of Christ. That's the purpose. That is the purpose of the Bible. Last week, Eric, our lead pastor, he, he, uh, he mentioned last week, he said, he said, Leviticus is a tough book to read if you're just starting to read the Bible. I agreed. It is. I agree with that, and I'm, I'm going to say that numbers... Ezekiel and a few other books are going to be really tough if you're just starting to to read the Bible. But here's the purpose in all these books. They're they're all a, a picture of how God is conforming, redeeming us into his image, conforming us into the image of Christ. So we read the Bible, we read those books as tough as they are, we read those books with that lens We find joy in, in reading the, the lists of the sons and grandsons and great-grandsons and so on of seemingly random people in the Old Testament. We, we find joy in that because these lists are they're breathed out by God. I mean, have you ever thought, if you're reading through numbers and you're going through one of these lists, you're struggling through it, these detailed lists of of, of these you know, genealogy, and you're, you're, you're thinking, why? Why? I'm trying to read the Bible through in the year, and I'm, it's, I'm, this, is, this is crazy. Think about this. The same God of the universe who found it so critical to include every detail of a genealogy 
list from some seemingly random person in the Old Testament is just as interested in every detail of your life. Makes you think a little differently about Leviticus, doesn't it? He cares. And then we, we, get to, uh, we get to verse 17. Verse 17 says that the result of Scripture doing all these things is we'll be made complete, equipped for every good work. So think about it this way. This is a, this is a progression, how we should think about this. This is, this is how Scripture completes and equips us. When we're, when we're saved, when we're followers of Christ, Christ lives in us. The very character of, of Christ dwells in us. This is the purpose of God's Word. We just talked about it, to, to mold us more and more into the image of, of Christ. Every word, every page in Scripture, Leviticus, Jeremiah, Song of Solomon, 2 Timothy, every word of it, all of it intended to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. God has breathed it into life for that purpose, to teach, correct, rebuke, train us in righteousness. So as the Word feeds us, the character of Christ grows in us. And then our, our conscience as a Christian is affected by the character of Christ in us. Christ changes the way we think. Christ changes the way we feel. Not, not instantly, not everything all at one time. It's a process. Sanctification is what it's, what it's called. We're, this is a process where we begin to think more like Jesus we begin to feel what he feels. We begin to desire what he desires. And we begin to want what he wants. We begin to see that all the stuff that this world has to offer doesn't satisfy anywhere near the way Christ satisfies us. Our desires begin to change. We don't want that stuff anymore that the world has to offer. We want Christ. The character of Christ in us affecting our conscience the way we feel, the way we think, the way we believe. And this, this changes then the way, the way that we behave, the way that we act. The reality is we, we do what our do. Our conduct is based on how we feel and what we think, what we believe. Don't miss this. We, we always live out what we believe. Our lives are, are they're a reflection of our, of our beliefs. Even when we sin, it's, it's, not, it's not really a conduct problem when we sin as much as, as much as it is a belief problem. When we sin, we're, we're saying, I don't believe God on this. I have a better way. I have a better route to take. So then this, the whole picture in, in Romans chapter 1, disordered worship leads to disordered desire, disordered thought, which leads to disordered action. It doesn't just happen in a vacuum. There's a base. There's a basis upon which we act. So then we, we cling to God's word to order our worship, desires, and actions. We have reverence for God's word. And that gets us then into chapter 4. Before Paul, like, the, this, this whole thing could be, this entire sermon could be titled Preach the Word. But before Paul gets there in verse 2, in, in verse 1, he, he gives us really three foundations or three reasons for that charge to preach the word that we'll see in, in verse 2. In essence, he's saying, he's saying, 
here's what I'm giving you. Here's why I'm giving you this, this charge to preach the word. First, he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus. This is Paul's way of reminding Timothy who called him into the ministry. It was God who called Timothy to preach the word. Timothy should carry on with proclaiming the, the gospel of Jesus Christ because that's what God called him to do. The second reason for preaching the word is that Jesus will judge the living and the dead. Not only will every human being living or dead be judged one day, but, but Timothy will also be judged for his faithfulness to his God-given calling. This is a weighty call for Timothy. It's a weighty call for pastors. On judgment day, every person will stand before Jesus. No exceptions. Those who have placed their faith in him, placed their faith in Jesus, will be counted as righteous and will enter the kingdom of heaven. Those who have rejected Jesus will spend eternity in hell. But the Bible says that God doesn't wish for anyone to perish, but for all to be saved. That's why we preach the word. That's why we share the gospel. And then finally, this third reason for preaching the word is by his appearing in kingdom. Here, Paul is saying that, that Jesus is coming soon. The reality is, one day soon, Jesus will return to establish his eternal reign and kingdom. I mean, no one knows the hour or day, so, so we, we live with a sense of urgency, constantly in a state of preparedness. We must continually preach the word, share the gospel until his coming. Bottom line, this isn't a call for just Timothy or pastors. This is a call to every believer. If you have put your faith in Christ, you signed up for this too. Live with a sense of urgency to proclaim the gospel at all times because we don't know when Jesus is going to return. But we do, we, we have a tendency to live our lives as if we don't actually believe that Jesus will ever return. Is this a belief issue? Is it laziness? Are we distracted with other, other life pursuits? I mean, whatever it is, we need to figure it out and get our priorities straight. I mean, this, this life is but a mist in the vast ocean of eternity. We're not here long, said a different way. Brothers and sisters, think about this. There are people all around us who will die without ever hearing the gospel. Do you care? If not, pray that God would burden you for the lost and dying without Christ around us and in this community, around the world. been to India a few times, and every, every time we go, it's part of the tour. You, uh, you, go, to, you go to a place where they, where they cremate people who have died, and it, there's such a, it's a heavy day knowing that in this state in India where we go, there are over 100 million people. 5,000 people a day die. And it's less than 1% Christian. 
5,000 people a day die without ever hearing the gospel. We go to villages and we'll say, who's heard of Jesus? Not one person raises their hand. We go, we go to places where, where church planters are preaching. Church planters who used to be Hindu priests. And they've given their life to Christ. And they've walked away from the fame, literally fame and enrichment of being a Hindu priest to serve in poverty for Christ. This burden is real. There are people every day dying around us who have never heard the gospel. People all over this world who have never heard the name Jesus. A few years ago, I was, I was reading a book by Greg Ogden on discipleship, and he, he said that something in this book that has really had this, this lasting impression on me. Um, he, he challenged the reader, me, to live my life as Jesus lived his, not characteristically, but in urgency. I mean, think about it. Jesus had three years left on this earth when he started his ministry. Of course, he knew that, and his life reflected that he had three years left. But, but think about that. What would, your, what would your three years look like if you knew right now that you had three years left on this earth? What would you do? Would it look any different than the last three? Hope. So as we, as we consider Paul's three reasons to, to preach the word, we've we, we got to admit that they're, they're pretty compelling. Preaching the word is a, is a matter of eternal life and death. After, after Paul tells Timothy why he should preach the gospel, he goes on to explain the, the what, when, and how he ought to do it in verse 2. So we're in verse 2 now. He says, Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. So, so remember, the, he goes on to explain the, the what, when, and how. What's the, what's the what here? The what to preach. The what is the word. What to preach is the word. And I mean, that's, that seems completely obvious when you think back to chapter 3, verse 16, but you... You've got to understand what's happening right now. So Timothy is in Ephesus. And what's happening in Ephesus is people are preaching a different gospel. They're preaching what people want to hear. They're not preaching God's word. They're not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he's, 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 he's telling him that, that, that this is the what that people need to hear, the, the word of God. Preach the word. He's going to contrast that in a minute with, with what's actually happening. So once, once Paul tells Timothy to what to preach, he goes on to, t- to uh, tell him when he should preach it. He says, be ready in season and out of season. By this, he, he means you should always be ready to preach the gospel, even when it's inconvenient, unexpected, or when we just don't feel like it. 
guilty. I've traveled for the last 20 years for my corporate job. And I've been on 100 planes a year. And there are plenty of times when I've been in another city and I am on my way home and I get on the plane and it's after a long day or two or three days and I'm wiped out. And I sit next to someone and we start a conversation and it gets, it gets religious and it gets religious quick. And I think to myself, God, no, please, I don't want to do this. I just want to veg out. I, I just want to watch Crazy Rich Asians or something. I don't really want to watch that. But I, you, you just want to do anything other than share the gospel with someone. Paul is telling us to be ready in season and out of season. He means that we should do it even when we don't even feel like it. We also see here in verse 2 that the how to preach the gospel. So preaching the word also involves the, the difficult tasks of reproving, rebuking, and exhorting. I mean, this, this means to, to point out when a person's beliefs, attitudes, words, or behaviors conflict with God's word. And we do this. We all know, we know what happens. When you're reproving, rebuking someone because of their sin, they're going to turn to you and they're going to say, you can't judge me. God judges me, not you. And this is the natural response from someone who is being reproved or rebuked because of their sin. The Bible never says that we are not to judge. The Bible instructs us on righteous judgment. We are to be, Paul tells us, we're to be careful here. Remember that we must do this with love, patience, careful instruction. All these, all these imperatives for preaching, they still apply today. They set up what's coming in verse 3 through 5, which is our second point. Man, i got to roll. It's getting late here. Second point, protect the word. It says, for, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an, of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Sad reality, guys, is today that all across America, across the world, there are preachers in pulpits who have quit teaching God's word. Some, and they wear all kinds of disguises, right? They're in suits, in robes, beards and gelled up hair, fancy clothes, $1,000 sneakers, whatever it looks like. But they're, they're not preaching the word of God, then they're wolves in sheep's clothing. They're out for enriching themselves and not giving glory to God for what they're for what they're preaching. They've replaced the truth of God's word for, for lies. Problem is, there, there are always people 
rushing to fill their churches because they, they want, they desire the false message that these guys are peddling. This, this all believes, or all, all leads to a, a warped belief of the meaning of Christianity. Here's the result. Here's the result of this teachings, right? So if, if you're to ask a, the average Christian sitting in a pew or seated in a church building, that they, if you ask them to sum up the, the message of Christianity, you're probably going to hear something along the lines of, the message of Christianity is that God loves me. Sounds good, right? Or, God loves me enough to send his son Jesus to die for me. Problem is, that's not biblical Christianity. Here's why. If, if God loves me is the essence of Christianity, then who's the object of Christianity? God loves me, therefore Christianity is about me. And church is about me and my preferences and my likes in music and my taste in this or that area. My life is about me, where I want to live and what I want to do, my dreams, my plans, my ambitions. That's not Christianity at all. Biblical Christianity says God loves me so that his glory and his majesty and his greatness might be made known to all nations. He is the object of Christianity and everything centers around him. Everything. But that's not where we are today. That's, that's not what we believe. I would suggest that we're living more in a verses three to five time period than a verses one to two. We live in a time where, where people, they have ears that itch for what they want to hear. And they have plenty of preachers who are give, gonna, they just give them what they want. Scratch that itch. There will be a time when people of God will no longer want the word of God. That's what, that's what Paul is saying here. Instead, they'll, 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 want to, they'll want that which is palatable to their lives and pleasing to their ears, that, that it adapts or adjusts to their lives instead of their lives adjusting to the, the message. They'll want a word that, that does not infringe on the comforts that they find in this world. They, they'll want everything but the word, and Paul says, preach it. Preach it. It may not be what they want, but it's what they need. Give them the word. New City Church, we may never have the coolest new trends in our church. We may never have a coffee shop. We may never have a slushy machine in a youth group. We may never have smoke machines behind our band. Sorry, Jamie. We may never have any of the latest and greatest fad that's sweeping church campuses across this country, but Eric and I commit to you that we will always have the Word of God front and center in our mission. God's Word will lead us in our mission to see Jesus change lives and to reach the world. Not any of that other junk. Not all that junk is bad, but 
when we're constantly competing in the cool church arms race, we'll inevitably take our eye off the mission just to pull people into an environment that's cool and innovative. At the same time, that, that thing that attracted these people to our church is the same thing that's going to take them to the church down the street when that church one-ups us in coolness. I mean, come on. We're not out-cooling anybody here. <laughs> we meet in a mall. Three weeks ago, it was raining from the air vent here down on the stage. We're, we're, not, we're not winning the cool race at all. Walter Kaiser, a great Old Testament scholar, he, he once said, um, he said, many pastors can preach whole messages without little more than a tip of the hat to a clause or two taken from a biblical context that few, if any, will recognize. Even more pastors have decided that using the Bible is a handicap for meeting the needs of the different generations. Therefore, they have gone to drawing their own sermons from the plethora of recovery and pop psychology books that fill our Christian bookstores. The market forces demand that we give them what they want to hear if we wish them to return and pay for the mega sanctuaries that we have built. Even when the word confronts us, challenges us, and threatens our ideals in the American dream, let's embrace it. Why do we stand on God's word? Why do we make that the centerpiece of worship here at New City Church? Hebrews 4.12 gives us quite possibly the best answer. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Whatever the attractional church has, Whatever they're selling, it's not living. It's not active. It's not sharper than a two-edged sword. It does not have the ability to pierce to the division of soul and of spirit, joints and of marrow, nor can it discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And guess what? Neither does the message that you want to hear that makes you feel better about your sin. The message may make you feel better temporarily, but it is eternally damning to your soul. Be careful, brothers and sisters. You, you will always be able to find a pastor or a teacher to tell you what you want to hear. Tell you how you can live your best life now. Or that Jesus came in love and that he's not concerned with my sin. Or that sin that is clearly called sin in the Bible isn't sin anymore because we've evolved to a more tolerant people. This is what Paul is warning Timothy of here in these verses. Timothy preached the word continually, constantly, consistently. Do not detour from it because there will be a time when people will they'll want a different message and there will be a pastor waiting to give it to them. You need to be there to protect the word. Paul tells us that this time is coming. He doesn't say that it might happen. It will happen. Verse 6, Paul gives kind of a, a summary of his life in ministry. He says, I am already even poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for departure. I have, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me 
the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing. That leads us to our third point. Persevere in the word. After Paul delivers this powerful charge to Timothy, he he takes a moment to reflect on his own life and ministry, but, but even this reflection was meant to be a lesson for Timothy. In verse 6, Paul uses an Old Testament metaphor about being poured out as a drink offering to to openly acknowledge that he knew that his days on earth were coming to an end. Just as wine was poured out in the Old Testament in the sanctuary of God, Paul's life continues to be poured out. It has been and continues to be poured out. And it's interesting here, Paul, he uses two sports metaphors as well in these, in these verses, one of, of a, like a boxing match and the other of a, like a marathon-style race. And he, so basically he's saying like two athletes who endure incredible adversity to win the prize, Paul has maintained his faith in the midst of unbelievable difficulties and sufferings. He knew that when he, when he died, the righteous judge, Jesus Christ, would place a crown of righteousness on his head. But unlike the Olympics where you know, only the top three finishers, they get the crown on their head, Paul's saying here that it's not just for him, but it's for everyone who strives, everyone who battles, who remains faithful to Jesus Christ. But that's, that's not the words. You catch this. Catch this. It's not the words that Paul's using here at the end of verse 8. Paul actually says, to all who have loved his appearing. To all who have loved his appearing. What does this mean, who loved his appearing? means that you love Jesus in such a way that you want him. You're thrilled that he appeared the first time. And you're eager to see him and be with him when he appears the second time. To love his appearing is to want him, to long for him, to desire him, to treasure him. Do you treasure Jesus today? If you aren't a Christian, then the answer is quite surely no. But, but why not? What do you treasure in this world or in your life? What has garnered so much of your affections that you place it in the treasured category? Paul wrote another letter to the church in Rome. We, we, call, that, we call that letter the book of Romans in the Bible. And in that letter, Paul says that without Jesus, our affections change. And we worship or we, worship or we treasure created things rather than worshiping or treasuring the one who is creator. Listen, we're, we're all called to worship. We're going we're gonna to worship someone or something. We worship things in our life. That's what we do. It's how we were made. It's in our DNA. If you aren't, if you aren't worshiping the one who created you, then please hear me out. Hear me out on this. We all have sin in our lives, and, and that's what separates us from God. Just, just one lie. One lie over your life. One lustful look at someone other than your spouse. Wanting something that you can't afford or that someone else has. It's called coveting. And so on and so on. But God loves us so much that he sent Jesus to live a sinless life for us so that he could go to the cross 
He could take the penalty for our sin on himself. Every sin we've ever committed, every sin that we will commit in the future has been laid on Jesus. That sin buried with him, he died willingly for us on the cross so that we can live forever with God. It's the greatest story ever told, but it's not, that's not it. He didn't stay dead. He rose just like he said he would, just like Scripture says that, that he would. He rose from the grave. He now lives in heaven. If you believe in Jesus, then when you die, you will stand before God, and Jesus will stand and claim you as his own. There's another book of the Bible called Acts, and we see this in action. We see Stephen, first, the first um, Christian martyr. He's professing his faith, and he's stoned. And as he is dying, laying there dying after being stoned, he looks up, he sees a vision of heaven, and he sees Jesus stand to receive him. I get chills when I think about that. He'll stand. You'll be in right standing with God. Romans 8 chapter 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I plead with you. Stop depending on yourself for salvation and trust in the one who died for you so that you may live. Treasure the one who died to save your soul. So now for anybody in the room that, that identifies as a Christian, these verses from Paul to Timothy are weighty for the church. We, here we are. We, we live in a time in history where there are temptations around us, temptations for more material stuff, temptations to be involved in any lifestyle imaginable. I mean, how do you stand firm in a culture that is constantly bowing at the altar of temptation? You preach the word in season, out of season, when it's popular and when it, when it goes against the, the rising tide of populism, you, you preach what the Bible says, not what you think it says or what you wish it would say, what you think others want to hear. Preach truth. Speak truth to people when they need to hear it. People may come to a church because of slick marketing or because what it appears to offer, but they'll stay because the word of God is being preached and because Jesus Christ and his gospel are the centerpiece and the hero of every sermon preached. This brings us full circle. What we talked, or what we talked about uh, early on tonight, and, and this this is where we'll end, guys. What will your, what will your legacy be? Think about it. What will your legacy be? We look, we look back, look back at verses 14 and 15 in chapter 3. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. He says, As for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know these from, from whom you learned it and how, listen to this, from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Those you learned the word from uh, from and you heard from the word from from infancy. Who's he talking about here? You turn back to Timothy chapter two, verse or Second uh, Timothy chapter one, verse five. Listen to this. This is incredible. Listen to this. Beautiful picture. It says, Paul says, "I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois 
And in your mother Eunice, I am persuaded, now lives in you also. Isn't that great? Did you, did you get that? Timothy had the word in him because a grandmother and a mother poured it into him. Did you catch that? Parents, feed your kids the word. Saturate your children with the word. Prioritize family worship. Read the word to your children. Teach your children to memorize the word. These are biblical patterns expressed in commands for us as parents. There's a, there's a study, real quickly, there's a study that's done, and, and this, this, this study basically looked at people who, who, who were believers as children. They, they were raised in the church, and then some of them stayed in the church, and then some of them didn't stay in the church. And the ones who stayed in the church asked why. Number one reason, three reasons. Number one, number one is they, their uh, spiritual conversations with mom. Number two, spiritual conversations with dad. And number three, serving together as a family. Moms and dads who talk with their kids about the word and then show what the word looks like in action. Realize, guys, all three of those things are not up to a children's ministry or a student ministry, preschool ministry. All three of those things are up to mom and dad. So moms, dads, pour the word into your children. If you don't have kids yet, then take other kids who don't have parents who pour the word into them and, I don't mean take them, but teach other kids who, whose parents don't teach them the word and teach them. Every single one of us, every man, woman, mom, dad, husband, wife, single, student, every single one of us. So that what Paul says in the end here, we may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, this is a, this is a heavy charge for us to preach the word in, in a world that seems like doesn't want to hear it. But Lord, we know that your word is good. We know that it's profitable. We know that it's valuable. And Lord, I just, I pray, God, that you would give us boldness, perseverance. Lord, that you would stand for us, Lord, when we feel too weak to do it, when we don't feel equipped enough to do it. Because, Lord, we know that the promise of your coming is soon. We know that your gospel is the only thing that can save, not anything that we have, anything that we can say. So I pray, God, that we would just be obedient in that tonight. It's in your holy name we pray.